who is wise and understanding among you? And figure out one of the first things that um, you should look for when you're reading a passage of scripture and trying to figure out what maybe the heart of it is, what you should be paying attention to. One of the first things you look for are words or phrases that get repeated. If the writer keeps saying the same thing over and over, that's something that you should pay attention to. And the one that gets repeated in our text today is the word wisdom or some version of someone who is wise and understanding. In five verses, we see the word wisdom four times. It's like a thing. If, uh, if this were the old days and we had our projector back, uh, <laughs> the supply chain is just keeping us in these bulletins. So uh, thank you. But uh, if we had the projector, I would show you a picture from above of the text with the highlighted words, wisdom or wise. You would see that wisdom functions as a kind of support beam to what James has written. And if we zoom out even further, like if we just look at the Bible from the same you know, altitude, what we see is that wisdom is a really big deal in the Bible. It's, it's a huge uh, topic of discussion, of reflection, of even command as well. Um, in the Old Testament alone, there are five different books that are called wisdom writings. The Jewish tradition of wisdom is very deep and rich and historical, and we have all of these writings that are just labeled as wisdom writings, books like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and for some reason, the Daniel Steele novel of Song of Solomon is in there too. <laughs> I think about like um, the word wisdom in the Old Testament is pictured also as perhaps taking part in creation. When that very strange verse early in the first chapter of the Bible reads where God says, let us, you know, God is a y'all somehow, let us make humanity in our image. Well, there's a tradition within the Jewish System that wisdom is a part of that plurality. There's a whole proverb, Proverbs 8, is the story of wisdom participating in creation. So there's something very beautiful about that. But over in the more easy-to-read street-level New Testament, um, the letter of James that we are in over these last few weeks fits in with that Jewish tradition of wisdom writings as well. If you read James, it's just wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. It's focused on what it means to be a wise person, what it means to be a person of understanding and knowledge. Now, you may have thought growing up that the Bible was about sin, that the main issue in the Bible was the do's and don'ts of a faith, but you would be wrong. It's not. It's wisdom. Wisdom wins out over any of those things. In fact, sin in the Bible is seen as the product of an unwise life, or as the Bible says ever so uh, softly, a fool's life. Sin is the product of a fool who's living his wife, life, living his wife, living his life unwisely. That too, thank you. So James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? It's a provocative question. James is basically saying to this church community, raise your hand if you think you're wise. Go ahead. He comes in hot. James has no, like, there's no soft landing with James. It's like, okay, we're just in this. 
You didn't lure me in with a funny story. Who, who thinks they're smart? He asks. Raise your hand. He's irritating the readers. He's bothering them. He's touching on a nerve. People in this ancient church community apparently were claiming to be wise. But James seems to know something else about them, so he provokes them. Go on. Tell me who is wise. I'll wait. These people are claiming a depth that perhaps they don't actually have. And so James is pulling the, I know more than you card because I'm the brother of Jesus. What is wisdom? When we see it in the Bible, what is wisdom about? What does it mean to be a wise person? Well, the simple definition, although quite profound in its layers, in the biblical tradition, the wise person is the one whose life is informed but also animated by God's presence and God's ways. It's different than knowing about something. It's being enfolded into a presence, but also a life that is lived. The wise are awake to the presence of God in their life, but also in the world around them. They see God everywhere. They are moved by this nagging sense that life, existence, all of those things, that they're not hollow or meaningless, that there's a deep, abiding presence around them. Now, this one's hard for me. I'm not uh, all that spiritually emotive when it comes to these things. Being aware and awake to the presence of God in my own life and in the world uh, is a struggle. Maybe you have the same struggle. I'm kind of a suspicious person. I'm a cynical, jaded Gen Xer whose impulse is to not believe you. I don't believe the news. I don't believe the politicians, everything in between. Um, I don't believe Instagram. No one really stands like that. I don't believe you. (laughs) I don't believe you. I don't believe that your son actually said that and it's profound. I don't believe that. I don't believe any of it. So the people who see God in everything are kind of strange to me. When I was in college, I had a friend that lived across the hall, and he saw God everywhere. Everything was God. The weather, the love of friends, the meal, the new pencil he just bought, (laughs) all of it. All of it was a gift from God. And he attributed everything to the Lord. That, in fact, was his phrase, the Lord. He came in my room one night and asked, "Uh, hey, do you have 50 cents? That's how much Cokes cost in 1990. (laughs) And he wanted to go get a Coke from the Coke machine. And he's like, do you have 50 cents? Go get something to drink. And I was like, yeah, there's 50 cents in the top drawer. And he said, the Lord. And I was like, Really? It's my money. You know? And then he said something from the Psalms about God saying, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. So I punched him in the face. I gave him 25 cents and told him to go find the Lord somewhere else down the hall. I'll let you decide if that last part's true or not. But it's hard for me. It may be for you as well. It's hard for me to like 
have that sense of presence all the time. Even though it is hard for me, I do want to admit that I do desire that. I do desire to be in that place more than I am. I want to see and feel God in all arenas of life and creation. I'm sure that you do too. I'm sure that your goal is not to end life at the end of your life say, I feel less attached to God. I think we all want that. And this is one of the foundational layers to wisdom is that the wise person knows this, that they are aware that God is present. There's an abiding presence among us and that we too are with God as well. If you get our newsletter, I'll put a copy of this in the newsletter tomorrow, but there's an ancient prayer, a type of prayer known as the prayer of examine. You can sort of get it from the word that you're examining your day, but it's done at the end of the day and it moves through these steps of first acknowledging the presence of God and just sitting there and being reminded of that. Because if you're like me, you just sort of go through life and you don't think about that. You're just doing task after task after task. And you don't think about that God is present in those moments. So it begins there, but it moves into this sense of gratitude that I'm thankful for these things from my day, but also an awareness that God is there, a reflection on that, and even a prayer of request that you would see God tomorrow. You'll get that in the newsletter. I would say practice that this week. It's a step into the tradition of being a wise person, to look back over our days and to count the ways that we sensed the presence of God. This is a very incredible practice. The psalm writer in chapter 90, verse 12, writes, teach us to count our days to pay attention. And then he says that we may gain a wise heart. Who is wise and understanding among you, James asks. Well, they are those whose posture is one of wonder. The wonder that comes from a sense that God is present in all things. As we read from the book of Proverbs earlier in the service, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then the little dig after that, that fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it begins there with this kind of position, this posture that says, well, I know I'm not God, and that's a good place to start. It's a good starting line, this wise view of the self, this low anthropology. And we begin there towards wisdom. But the wise are also informed and animated by God's ways. This is very key. James answers his own question in this part of the letter. Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. Born of wisdom. He's pointing at the very human condition that encourages us to see ourselves as wiser and more informed, more savvy than those around us. We love that. We love to be ahead of people in what we think we know. And James says, I'd rather see it. And what I want to see is this gentleness in your life that's born from wisdom. Nadia Bowles-Weber just wrote recently on her social, our contempt for each other is a national security issue. And our drug of choice right now is knowing who we're better than. 
I figured it would be quiet in the room. I mean, when I read that, I was like, yeah, that's me. Because I'm better than all you people, you know. (laughs) I don't think that for sure. I'm just saying. Some of you maybe, but... And in the rest of today's passage, you, can, you heard as Kendra read it, but you can just look back at it. I mean, James pushes on this very issue. He's quite concerned about this unbridled arrogance that was becoming disruptive in the community of God. And the community that God was working to build was being disrupted by this unbridled arrogance among people. And he does this by comparing two kinds of wisdom. He says, well, there's a wisdom from above, and then there's this earthly wisdom from below. There's a heavenly and an earthly. There's a divine and a terrestrial. There's a cosmic and a sandy. There's an eternal and the fleeting type of wisdom. And the difference between the two, and this is remarkable, the difference between the two wisdoms comes down to whether or not that we are bringing peace or division into the world. The whole passage is marked by this tension between the peace and gentleness of God and the petty and insufferable nature of our world. When the scriptures talk about, quote, the world or, quote, the earth, it's often a way to point to things in life that are shallow. It's not trashing creation. That's not what that means. It's talking about the ways of the world the things that are shallow, the things that are not worth our obsessions. It's an image of things that are basically on the surface and very easy, right? It's really easy to hate people. It's so easy. It requires no training. We seem to be built for it. It's easy to divide a room. It's easy to feel superior. This requires no practice. But James says... Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom, that wisdom has something to do with bringing peace into the world. The implication is that the longer we follow Jesus, uh, the, the more of his ways of compassion and gentleness and mercy begin to show themselves in our lives too. Here's the question. How do you know you're growing in your faith? Is it information? Is it that you know a lot about this verse or that book or this topic? Is it information? Well, according to this, according to wisdom, according to the ways of Jesus, the way you know that you're growing in your faith is that this is going to sound so profound. But as you age, you become more gentle. I was in counseling last year because of the cancer and working that out. And I don't know how we got on this topic of aging. And he asked me as a pastor, what do you notice about people aging? I was like, well, two-thirds of my room go to Georgia Tech. They're all very young. I wish I was young. No one's aging. Everyone's always the same age. Uh, It's like a Groundhog Day situation. But we talked about this, and I said, my experience in in all these years is that people age in two ways. They become more cranky, or they become more gentle. There's something to this wisdom 
taking root in our lives, this growth in our faith, that we become more gentle. And I would say the difficult pastoral question for you is, are you more angry now than you were a year ago? At the world, at people, at just anything? Or do you find yourself becoming more gentle, understanding, soft, with those who are suffering? Do you see people's isable, or you see their texts in your life? Is it just, you're angry? Is that what is being born in your life? Is it worse now than it was a year ago, three months ago, two years ago? Or do you sense that you're becoming more and more merciful? This is a sign of growth. I hate to say it. It's not that you know the books of the Bible in order, but there's something about the ways of the mercy of Christ becoming more evident in your life and in mine. I don't want to exclude me. I'm terrible at this, but we can do it together. We've set aside three Sundays to talk and reflect on the relational and the spiritual and what we call the missional aspects of this strange thing that we call the church. We do it every year in some form. What does a healthy church look like? That's the question. Well, when we search the scriptures, when we brush up on a little church history, we find that a healthy church is marked by its love for each other and for the world, its deepening faith, and its care for those in need. These three qualities are always present. We titled the series Church Bus because that's fun. And... Um, Each of these aspects goes with, and we've sort of attached them to like a well-known room that you find in a church. And we talked about community and loving one another last week, and the room in the church that we used was the fellowship hall, right, if you were here for that. Next week, we'll talk about service and mission, and the room in the church there is the food pantry. But today, we're in the Sunday school room. Anybody remember Sunday school? Oh my gosh. For those of you who are new to church uh, and didn't really grow up in one when you were young, the Sunday school was this hour for kids and adults to uh, get together and learn about uh, stuff in the Bible. It's pretty profound. Um, But Sunday school didn't really start this way. Sunday school actually started in England in the 1700s as a way to teach poor kids to read. Because of their long hours at factories, children were growing up not knowing how to read. And so the church steps in. It did happen this way in America, too. That tradition moved here as well. But over time, with better labor laws and better education, Sunday schools shifted to be this place where kids and adults would learn the stories and the teachings of the Bible. It's a place of education. When we think of Sunday school, we think of learning, gaining knowledge. I also think of like flannel boards, goldfish crackers, Cheap crafts. I was going over this with Lindsay this week, and she's like, you're describing my children's ministry. (laughs) To which I said, what else is lame about your program? I want to put that in there. (laughs) We said last week that our uh, church, that all churches are first and foremost a table a place for people to pull up a chair and build friendships and to sit at the table of Jesus together. Church is first a community. It is a place of friendship and support. That is one of its purposes. 
but it's also a school. It's a school of wisdom. I'm actually impressed. Been here a long time, 15 years in this church. I'm actually impressed by your thirst for learning about Jesus and his ways. I mean, all summer we just threw out all these spaces where you could do those things and lecture nights and book clubs and groups and they've just been full. It's just been remarkable. You'll hear next week when we talk about service and mission how many of you actually volunteer in things. We get an A plus in these areas. It's very encouraging. But we have to be reminded from time to time that we are in the school of wisdom. That we learn the ways of Jesus so that those ways may show in our lives. That's the point. My first real memory of Sunday school was not as a child. I don't really remember those things. But I do remember uh, high school. And we had just started going back to church on the regular. And the first Sunday morning, I was dropped off in a Sunday school class with all 10th graders. This is a big youth group. They had a 10th grade class. My teacher's name was Richard Ward. And I will never forget him. He was... I mean, as a high schooler, I thought he was 75 years old, but he was probably 30. <laughs> but his curriculum, I mean, the, the, the Sunday school was not, the room was not attractive. It was just school desks and a desk up front. And Richard Ward sat on the desk and he had this book that he brought with him every Sunday. And though I never held the book in my hand, it had something to do with the lives and the stories of Jesus' disciples that we find in the Gospels. And I learned later that he taught this same class every year because you just had a 10th grade class, they'll move on, you do it again with the next one. And all year he taught us the stories of these men and women who followed Jesus. And what we learned was that following Jesus was ultimately about being with Jesus, about watching and listening to Jesus, about copying and imitating Jesus in our life. At the annual end of the year youth group dinner, who doesn't love those, Richard Ward would get up and give out gifts to all the students in his class, but he would preface those gifts by talking about each student and then attaching them to the disciple that they most reminded him of. It's very powerful to hear people, you know, we're all wondered who's going to be Judas, you know, is that... <laughs> Is that me? I don't know. But I think Judas was not invited to the uh, award ceremony. Uh, to be fair about Judas, when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples left. I just want to be clear about that. Um, but it was a very powerful thing to hear him talk about a student and then say, this person reminds me of Mary or of Peter. Thomas, very powerful, that the life of the disciple is one of learning, imitating, watching Jesus, and then trying it out in life. The late philosopher Dallas Willard wrote, I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I'm learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. We have a simple statement here at the church that describes our reason for being here. It's not unique. Every church has the same sort of thing. 
But it just goes like this, that our aim is to be a people growing in the ways of Jesus. That's the road of wisdom. We're on a wisdom road. The church is a table, but it's also a school. Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount saying, everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Amen. So stay thirsty, my friends. <laughs> Keep pursuing the wisdom of God, the presence of God, and just see where it leads you.